0: Thanks for tuning in to the Banner Church Podcast, recorded live in sunny Scottsdale, Arizona. For more information, visit banner.church today. Enjoy the message. Morning, Banner Church. Morning. So good to see you all here this morning. Um, I am loving this weather that we're having. It's it's absolutely beautiful. I was so excited when I came out of my house this morning, and I was like, I don't have to just wear a t-shirt. Like, this is great. Like, I feel comfortable actually wearing a second layer today. It was awesome. So wonderful. Um, Today, uh, we're going to be continuing our series on confronting Christianity. The last few weeks, Pastor Josh has shared with us some amazing messages talking about some of the myths that are really prevalent in our culture about what Christianity is. And today, we're continuing forward in that, confronting the myth that science has disproven Christianity? That is the question that is before us. Now, as I was preparing this message, one of the things I really wanted to avoid is I did not want to turn this message into an hour-long lecture where I just kind of give you principles of why I would say, no, science has not disproven Christianity. Instead, my hope this morning is that this is a message of encouragement for those of you who are here who are in a season of doubt, who maybe you've looked at Christianity, you have friends or family members who see Christianity, maybe even you've had faith yourself at one time or another, but your reason honestly is keeping you from giving your full trust to Christ. This morning, I want this message to be an encouragement for you, an encouragement for your faith, to show you that your mind and your heart can actually be united with Christ, that you don't have to leave your brain at the door when you become a Christian. That's the hope of this message. I also want to encourage those of you, maybe who yourself you're not in a season of doubt, but you have family members or friends who are in that place, and you don't have the words to communicate to them the reason for your own faith. I hope that today this will give you some of those words, some of the ways that you can express your faith to those people and bring them closer to God. So you guys, are you okay if we go through that today? Are you all right with that? Uh, I think that uh, uh, one of the things I, I really want to bring up just from the outset of this is that science is awesome. I love science so much, I've been a science nerd since I was a little kid. Uh, when, when I was just a little boy, I, I remember that uh, uh, we had a loft up in, in my house that, we grew up, that I grew up in, and there was a closet off to the side of the loft. And I remember one time I, I came to my parents and I said, is it possible, can we take everything out of the closet because I want to have my own lab. And my parents were like, okay, I mean, don't become an evil scientist, but all right, yeah, we can make you a lab. So I went up there, and we took everything out, and then I started to collect, um, you know, you know how boys are. I started, like, catching snakes and lizards and putting them in cages up there in the loft, which my mom was not happy about. Let me tell you right now. But I would do little science experiments up there, and I had test tubes, and I had all these critters around. It was so much fun. I've been a science nerd forever. And uh, that, that science nerd within me was awakened once more a few months back, back in July, when the James Webb Space Telescope released its first images. How many of you saw some of those images that NASA released? They're incredible, beautiful. I think we have one here that we can put up on the screen right here. Just how majestic is this? When I first saw this, my heart leaped. The little nerd inside of me just was so excited. Now, for those of you who don't know, the James Webb Space Telescope is a 100 times more powerful than ever any telescope that has used in human history. And this image right here that you see on the screen is what people have been calling the cosmic cliffs. It is the Carina Nebula, a momentous expanse of hydrogen gas which has been shaped by streams of stellar wind particles and is set against a backdrop of stars that are thousands and millions of light years away from us. It is just awe-inspiring. And when these images were released back in July, people reacted to them in some different ways. Some people saw images like this, and they quoted Psalm 19, saying, "...the heavens declare the glory of God." Others, however, saw these momentous expanses and they thought, how ridiculous and small are all our petty philosophies and religions here on this planet. Uh, As Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist and scientist said, the universe we observe, as in that picture, has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom No design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. That's a very different reaction than Psalm 19. Which of these reactions is the right one? Science speaks something to us, to our minds and to our hearts, but there seems to be a difference in how many people are reacting. Does science disprove Christianity? Is the images are the images from the James Webb Spa- Space Telescope evidence that, thi- that this universe is just a place of blind, pitiless indifference? Or is it evidence of a God who loves and cares for us and who designed the world full of beauty? I think you can guess my answer to that since we are in a church today. I want to go through this by answering really three uh, more specific questions that I think will help us bring, help bring us to a deeper understanding of why I would say that science does lead us to God. Here are the three questions. Number one, what do we mean when we say science? Science. I think that there has been a great deal of confusion in our modern world by what that word means, and I want to bring some clarity to that today. Number two, can science and faith coexist? This is a big question. We have in our modern mind this idea that the church is opposed to science and that you have to make your decision. Are you going to be scientific or religious? And I want to say today that really that conflict is not as deep as you think it is. And then finally, is there scientific evidence for Christianity? And I think today, as we'll see, that in a sense there is. That our faith is not as blind as we sometimes make it out to be, but there is reason and evidence that we can rely on to say that our faith truly is true. So, let's go through these together. The first one I want to answer is, what do we mean when we say science? What do we mean? Well, science, if I could just give you guys a basic definition of what it is, a textbook definition, it would be this. Science is a method of studying the natural world through experimentation a method of studying the natural world through experimentation. This is a method that was developed back in the 16th and 17th centuries, and it has proven over the last 400 years to be extremely effective. Science is awesome. It is a method of coming to understanding about the natural world that has revealed thousands of new discoveries. Because of science today, we have medicine that's much better than just cutting people open and bleeding them to get rid of a disease. Hallelujah for that. Thank you, I love it. Because of science, we have cars that we can drive around in. Because of science, we have air conditioning in Arizona. Oh, amen. (laughs) Hallelujah, hallelujah. I would not live here if it was not for science and air conditioning. You would not find me in Arizona, would not be here. Thank goodness for science. It's wonderful, this method of experimentation that reveals the mysteries of the natural world. But today, when people use the word science to talk about faith, they don't mean that. What they mean is something actually very different. What they mean is scientism. Here's what scientism is. Scientism is the belief that science is the only, someone say only, only Only way to knowledge. And this is usually united to naturalism, which is the belief that nothing beyond the natural or material world exists. Scientism is best encapsulated, uh, I think, by the movie Nacho Libre. One of my favorites, one of my favorite movies of all time. There's a scene in the movie where Nacho gets upset because they're losing all these wrestling matches. He's trying to figure out what's wrong. And then he realizes his wrestling partner, uh, Steven, is not baptized. And he asks him, why are you not baptized? And Steven responds, I don't believe in God. I only believe in science. And it's this ridiculous moment because, of course, Stephen in the movie doesn't really know anything about science. He's not a trained scientist. But he uses science as an excuse for saying that all the other ways of explaining the world don't matter. That is scientism. And scientism, as opposed to science itself, is limiting to us. It limits our ability to consider all the other various ways of knowing that are presented to us. Not only that, but the statement itself of scientism that there's no other way to truth, no other way to knowledge, is contradictory. It's self-contradictory. Follow me for a moment in this. To say there's no other way to truth except for science is not a scientific statement. I can't give you a science experiment that proves that there's no other way to knowledge except science. That statement itself is more a statement of faith than it is a statement of science. When someone says that the only way to knowledge is science or that there's nothing beyond the natural world that we see, they are making a faith claim just as much as the Christian who says, I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Both of them are not necessarily scientific. Because science tells us how the natural world works. Beyond that, it can't tell us much. When we use it to study the natural world, it's awesome, but try to make it do something else, it's bad it doesn't work even albert einstein who one of the greatest scientists uh, of our modern era he knew this and he wasn't himself a christian he said back in the 1940s you are right in speaking of the moral foundations of science but you cannot turn around and speak of the scientific foundations of morality in other words science can tell you how to build bombs, but it can't tell you who to drop the bombs on. Right? G.K. Chesterton, the British author, said it this way. He said, science is only splendid when it is science. When science becomes a religion, it becomes superstition. So can science and faith coexist? Well, I think today something we really need to get clear is that science and scientism absolutely cannot. You cannot say that science is the only way to truth and affirm the truths of Christianity. But science itself, a method of understanding the natural world and faith in Jesus Christ, not only do they not conflict with one another, they complement one another. Christianity actually serves as a wonderful foundation for the practice of good science. Um, John Lennox really brought this to the forefront, I think. He, he's a mathematician and scientist at Cambridge University, and in his book, Has Science Buried God?, he recounts a debate that he had with one of his friends at Cambridge who's a physicist And he was having this debate in one of his rooms there at Cambridge, and so he had like a kitchen set up. And uh, the physicist was saying that science is the only way to truth, and, and really we can't trust religion because it's not verifiable, and it doesn't offer the same thing. And John Lennox used this example for him. He took a pot of water, and he put it on the stove and turned the stove on, and as the water began to boil, he asked the physicist, why is the water boiling? And the physicist, being what he was, launched into a long explanation of how the water was boiling. He talked about the water molecules and how they were reacting to high levels of heat, resulting in rapid vaporization. He talked about the chemistry that goes into this. And he goes on and on and on and on, and John Lennox just sits there patiently listening to him. He gets to the end, and John Lennox says, you've given me a wonderful explanation of How the water is boiling, but you haven't told me yet why. Do you want to know why? Because I wanted some tea. And both of those statements can be true, can't they? Both the scientific explanation of how the water boils and the fact that it's boiling because he wanted some tea can both be true. And I think that religion works in the same way. Martin Luther King Jr., himself a philosopher, put it this way. He said... Science investigates. Religion interprets. Science gives man knowledge, which is power. Religion gives man wisdom, which is control. Science deals mainly with facts. Religion deals mainly with values. The two are not rivals. They are complementary. Again, G.K. Chesterton said this, he said, science cannot impose any philosophy any more than the telephone can tell us what to say. See, a telephone's a wonderful tool, science gave it to us, but it can't determine the course of your language. So too with science itself. It's a wonderful tool, but it's a bad master. I think that a lot of this misconception, that there's a conflict between faith and science, comes from a great myth that we've been taught to believe about the foundations of science back in the Middle Ages. All of us kind of have these images in our mind of this time where, you know, the first scientists start to make discoveries in Europe in the Middle Ages, and the church was violently opposed to it, and they start persecuting the scientists, and they're executing them and putting them to death by, you know, burning them at the stake. But that is a myth. It is not historically true in the slightest. Did you know that we do not have a single historical record of a scientist being killed because of their science by the church, ever, ever. Not one in the whole catalog of Western history has that happened. It's a myth that we've built up in the modern world, not only has the church never killed people because of their science, but science itself arose out of a Christian context. Scientists began their work because they believed in the rationality of the universe. They believed that a good God with reason made a good world that was rational and well-ordered and that we As people made in the image of God, gifted with a part of God's reason, were capable of discovering the well orderedness of nature. That's why science began in the first place. And it's no surprise that Christians were the first people in history to conduct, support, and finance scientific experimentation. In the 16th century, one of the early founders of the scientific method was Copernicus. And he, dis- he was the man who argued and discovered that the earth revolved around the sun as opposed to the other way around. Did you know that Copernicus, as well as being a scientist, was also a priest? After him, Galileo continued to do his work by inventing the telescope. Galileo was a Christian, and although he had some conflict with the church, he certainly was not persecuted to the level that we think today. Kepler, who came around the same time, who developed the laws of planetary motion, was also a professor of theology. Francis Bacon, the founder of the scientific method, he said back in the 17th century, "...a little science, science inclineth a man's mind to atheism, but depth in science bringeth men's minds about to religion." Isaac Newton, the man who discovered gravity and invented calculus. Oh, uh, that's a bummer. I really didn't wish I didn't have to take calculus in school. He said that all of his work was done to glorify God and reveal his beauty in the world. Gregor Mendel, the father of modern genetics, was a Catholic monk who did all of his experiments in the back room of his parish church. Blaise Pascal, the mathematician and father of modern probability theory, said, there is a God-shaped hole in all of our hearts, and God is the only one who can fill it. Francis Collins, the biologist who helped uh, uh, lead the Human Genome Project, said that our DNA itself is evidence that God designed us. And this is my favorite one, George Lamatre. The astronomer who developed the Big Bang theory was a priest who said that he considered the Big Bang to be the moment that God spoke the universe into existence. Not only are faith and science not in conflict, but faith in God is the very ground upon which science can be conducted at all. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, Men became scientific because they expected law in nature. And they expected law in nature because they believed in a lawgiver. In most modern scientists, this belief has died. It will be interesting to see how long their confidence in uniformity survives it. Two significant developments have already appeared the hypothesis of a lawless subnature and the surrender of the claim that science is true. We may be living nearer than we suppose to the end of the scientific age. Those of you who follow academia and have followed the rise of postmodern theory in universities around our country will know that what C.S. Lewis predicted in the 1940s is already coming true. At the highest echelons of our scientific endeavors, at the universities of our country, Very smart, intelligent people are beginning to say there is no truth at all. Science does not give us truth. There is no real, ultimate truth. Why do they say this? Because they've lost the foundation upon which science was built in the first place. A belief in a good God who made a good world. Well, that's all fine and good. There's no conflict between science and faith. We can say that with a lot of confidence. That we as Christians can embrace science very closely and say this is something that arose out of our own faith. But it's not quite enough. I want to say today that science actually can lend credence to our faith. The third and final question I want to unpack here is, is there any scientific evidence for Christianity? As I pointed out before, science studies the natural world, so in a sense, it is limited in what it can tell us about God. We have to recognize that from the beginning. But I think that really there is more evidence on the side of Christianity than we may first suppose. If you have your Bible with you today, would you open up your Bible to 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, verse 3. Again, that's 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, verse 3. I want to read this passage for you that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. At that time, Paul discovered that the Christians in Corinth were having trouble believing in some of the doctrines, such as the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, uh, it, it might confuse us today to see why, because we look at ancient people and we're like, oh, it was easy for them to believe in the resurrection. They were, you know, dumb ancient people without science. But ancient people knew that dead people don't get up. They knew that just as well as we did. And so the claims of the gospel that Jesus rose from the dead was as scandalous back then as it is today. And Paul wanted to encourage the church of Corinth and their faith in the following way. Listen carefully to this. For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Caiaphas and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Most of whom are still living. Though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James Then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and I do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No. I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. What this scripture reveals for us is that our faith is in fact based on evidence. I can't do a scientific experiment to prove that God is real, but then again, I can't do a scientific experiment to prove that my mama loves me, but I know it's true. (laughs) And I know it's true because of evidence. It's not perfectly blind. I have evidence for it, and here we see that evidence. I believe here that, that Paul really shows us three ways in which we can gain evidence and trust for our faith. The first is historical, He lists that there are eyewitnesses who saw the resurrected Jesus. He's not afraid to offer us that historical evidence. The second is that the gospel has explanatory power. It makes sense of the world that we live in, of the lives that we live. And then third and finally, he offers the evidence of his own personal testimony of how God transformed his life. So I want to unpack these very quickly and then we'll, we'll come to the end here and, and pray. First one, historical evidence. I love that Paul begins by mentioning the eyewitness testimonies in this verse. He points to the scriptures that have been written down by the apostles themselves and then says, You know these people who attest to the resurrection of Jesus. There's over 500 of them, and some of them are still living with us. Which I'm jealous of the people back in Corinth. If you could have actually spoken with the people who saw Jesus resurrected from the dead, today we don't have that luxury. Today we have to rely on the scriptures themselves, on the letters of Paul that have been given to us. But I think that these scriptures are actually more historically reliable than we sometimes give them credit. If you can allow me to just get technical for a minute, I'm I'm a professional historian, so let me give you just a little bit of how it is we determine the historical accuracy of ancient documents. When a historian wants to know how trustworthy an ancient document is, they do two things. Number one, they try to see how many copies of ancient manuscripts do we have that attest to the book that we read. Then they compare those ancient manuscripts together, and they see how much overlap is there. How accurate are they to one another? And based on that comparison and how many we have, we can say whether or not an ancient document is actually trustworthy. So let me give you just a quick example. Uh, Julius Caesar, which, I I don't know, is there anyone in the room who denies that Julius Caesar existed? (laughs) Nobody here? We all believe, okay, good, great. That's good, I'm glad you do. Julius Caesar was an ancient Roman emperor. He lived about 50 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, so pretty close to that time period. And he wrote quite a few books, the most famous of which is The Conquest of the Gauls. Of all his books, we have 10 ancient manuscripts, the oldest of which was written in 900 A.D. That means it was written over a 1,000 years after Julius Caesar lived himself. When we compare those 10 manuscripts together, there is an 89% overlap, an 89% accuracy between them. And from that, 10 copies, 89% accuracy, we can say with confidence, Julius Caesar definitely existed, And his books are pretty much true to the source material. What he wrote is what we're able to read. When we look at the New Testament, just get ready. (laughs) Remember, Julius Caesar, ten ancient manuscripts. When we look at the New Testament, there are 2,928 ancient manuscripts, the oldest of which was written in 130 AD. That means it was written less than 100 years after Jesus's resurrection. And when we compare the 2,928 ancient manuscripts together, there is a 99.5% overlap between them. If you're comfortable believing in the life of Julius Caesar, how much more can we trust that the Gospels are accurate about the life of Jesus Christ? It's incredible, the historical evidence that we have for the truth of Scripture is, it's overwhelming. And in this narrative, not only do we see things in the narrative that have given to us by Scripture itself, but it's attested to by other ancient authors we see references to Jesus and to Christianity by ancient historians who themselves weren't believers, such as Josephus, Tacitus, Pliny, Mara of Barsippon, and Clement of Rome, just to n- name a few. It's overwhelming. The, the testimony of Paul himself and of the disciples who saw Jesus is relevant for our lives today and you can put your trust or your faith in it with confidence. Not only that, though, but there's an explanatory power to the gospel itself. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, he says, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made. When we look at the heavens, when we see images from the James Webb Space Telescope, when we live our everyday lives, we see that the world is both beautiful and yet also very cruel. Humanity is clearly gifted with dignity and intelligence, yet also cursed with sin and foolishness. We ask the question, why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? And we expect an answer that makes sense. And Christianity offers a coherent explanation for all of that. A coherent explanation for why the world is so beautiful, yet also so evil. And what we can do about it. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe in the sun, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. The heavens declare the glory of God. So we have historical evidence from the scriptures We have coherent evidence in the way that Christianity explains our lives and our world. But more than that, we have the testimony of God's work in our own lives. Paul, in this passage, he uses his own testimony of how God transformed his life to prove that the gospel is true. And if you look around this room right now, you will see the same thing. There are dozens of people in this room that if you ask them to tell you their testimony, they will share story after story of how God showed up in the darkest of moments, of how God transformed them from death to life. I myself am only up here on this stage because God delivered me from addiction, because by the grace of God, I've forgiven people who have hurt me, because by the grace of God, I am filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit instead of living in despair and chaos. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. He was a persecutor of the church. He murdered Christians. And he went from murdering Christians to becoming the most prolific apostle of the church how does that happen but by the grace of god and the same can be said here in this room for us more even than that i think there are some of you in this room who you might say well that's nice for other people but i haven't experienced that one of the wonderful wonderful things about christianity about what christ tells us is christ invites us to test him we're told in the psalm psalm 34 verse 8 it says taste and see that the lord is good one of the disciples that paul mentions gives evidence for the resurrection was thomas we call him often in church doubting thomas because when all the other apostles said we believe that jesus has rose, risen from the dead he said i won't believe it until i see his wounds with my own eyes Christ appeared to him and he said, Thomas, look at the holes in my hands. Touch the wound in my side. Do you believe now? I think there's many people in this room who are just like Thomas, who say, I won't believe it until I see it. And Christ says, reach out and touch me. Reach out, put your faith in me and see the miracles that I will do. Align yourself in your life with who I am and just wait and see how I do the impossible. I'm a, I'm a bit of a nerd, as you can tell. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I'm a bit of a nerd and, and I actually came across in my nerdum. A story that really illustrates well this doubt and this tension with faith. Uh, When I stumbled upon a 90s television show from Poland called the Decalogue. Uh, For those of you who don't know the Decalogue in Latin, it, it, it means the Ten Commandments. And it was a show written just after the Berlin Wall fell and communism fled from Eastern Europe. And the Polish people were wrestling with the years of repression that they had under the communist regime. And the communist regime at the time uh, would not allow people to practice Christianity. And they were wrestling with that. And in the very first episode of this TV show, we're, we're presented with this story about a father and his son. And the father was a scientist a computer scientist on the edge of great discoveries there in the 90s. And his family is very religious. And so he shields his son away from his family. He doesn't allow his son to talk with the rest of the family because he thinks that what they will tell him will fill his mind with fairy tales and corrupt him. Instead, he wants to raise his son to trust only in science. Every day when his son comes home from school, he does science experiments with his son. He shows him the wonders of the natural world. And and it's truly this beautiful story that you see unfolding. There's a clear love between this father and this son. On the boy's 10th birthday, the father gives him a pair of new ice skates. And he promises him that as soon as the ice in the pond outside of their apartment is thick enough, that he'll allow the boy to go out and use his new skates for the first time. Day after day, the father walks the boy through a number of equations based on meteorological data to see when the pond is actually going to have thick enough ice for them to be on it. Every day, they look at the data, and they do the equations, and every day, it's the same thing. Not quite yet. Not quite yet. Not quite yet. It's not thick enough yet. Finally, day comes. The boy comes back from school. They get the data um, from the weather service. They run it through the equations, and they come back positive. The ice is thick enough. It's time to go. And the boy is so excited he grabs his skates he runs down the stairs he heads out to the pond and the father is happy that his son is finally able to use the gift that he got him But then the unthinkable happens The ice cracks and the boy falls through and he drowns And the father is devastated He goes back to his equations to see if he made a mistake, if it was his fault that his son died, and he goes through them again and again and again, and he checks the data again and again, and it's all correct, and yet his son is still dead. And in that moment, he realizes that even though his science helped him understand the mysteries of the natural world, it's not enough to help him reconcile the death of his only son He's put his trust for so long in these equations, and now the equations have let him down. And in this beautiful moment in the show, he walks across the snow to an abandoned church that had been bombed back in the war. It's a symbol for his own broken faith. And as he steps into this church with a concaved roof, he looks at the back of the church where there's the shadow of where a cross once was, and he falls to his knees, looking up at the cross, the symbol of death, the symbol of suffering that somehow brings life. And he weeps before it. He crawls forward on his knees, and he goes to the baptismal fount at the front of the church. And he tries to draw water out of it to see if he can baptize himself and cleanse himself to find some sort of hope. And as he reaches in, he sees that the baptismal fount is frozen. So he picks up a piece of ice and he holds it to his head, hoping, hoping that just as that ice would melt, so would the hardness of his heart. Would you stand with me today? Although science is a wonderful thing and it gives us a great deal of knowledge, the real question in this life is what do you trust? I want to pray for two sets of people in this room today. I want to pray for those of you Who have been struggling with doubt, for those of you who, like the disciple Thomas, have struggled to believe in the things of God, but I also want to pray for those of you who have family members who are in that place, who have friends in that place, and you want to minister to them the truth of the gospel, but you haven't really had the boldness to do so with your testimony with every head bowed and every eye closed. If that is you today, if you're someone in that season of doubt, or if you are close to someone in that season of doubt, and you need prayer for this, for the renewing of your mind, for the renewing of your friends and your family's minds, would you raise your hand in faith that God will meet you? Amen. Amen. Lord, We come before you today, even with our doubt, and we give it to you. We pray, God, that even in the mysteries of life, that you will speak to us. Holy Spirit, we pray that right now you would reveal yourself to us more fully than you ever have, more concretely than you ever have, that you would speak to our hearts and to our minds, God, Lord, for those in this room who say they believe, I pray that we would pray with one voice, I believe, but help my unbelief. Give me the faith to follow you more truly in my everyday walk with you. All of this we pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Banner Church Podcast. We hope this message was impactful for you. Check the episode notes to visit our website, follow us on social media, and subscribe to our podcast. We'll see you again next week.